Hello? Hello, Father Thomas. How are you? Don't tell me this is the, the uh, distinguished Ken Wilber. <laughs> the world's well, most brilliant synthetic metaphysician <laughs> and spiritual giant. Only if this is Father Thomas Keating, the world's <laughs> foremost living saint, I'm, in my I'm, opinion. I'm unknown and counted as nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, we want to talk about um, several things. Uh, you and I had chatted last week and caught up on a lot of issues and... I thought if we could, we'd just talk a little bit today and kind of give an overview, uh, particularly of centering prayer and how you came to emphasize it and put it at the center of a contemplative life, and in particular, outreach to some of the younger people that want a kind of living spirituality in their life, but not necessarily some of the dogma or even myths or outward structures. And you and I go back a ways. I mean, we've known each other off and on for, for yeah. several decades. So do you mind kind of just sort of reviewing some of these things? Uh, no. Yeah. Uh, okay. I, can, I can remember it in some reasonable order. We'll run through them. Um, let's turn the clock way back and talk about what got you interested in basically a contemplative and spiritual life. Why did you become a lawyer or a doctor or a gas station attendant? I mean, what was it about the church? Well, uh, when I was uh, my first year in college, I had a course in the modern philosophers, Nietzsche and Schiller, Schopenhauer, Tolstoy, and a number of others. It was a survey course. Yes. So I had been raised Catholic, but without uh, very profound grounding in the historical or the theological background. Right. And so I was uh, shaken up quite a bit by those writings, and I felt that I really had to resolve this right. by studying. And so for the first time, I read them. And I was especially influenced by the book by Tolstoy on Sermon on the Mount. Yes, book. yes. It was part of his conversion. Well, that opened the gates for me to begin to pursue a, a spiritual life in the context of Christian tradition, and especially the gospel and how it was understood by the early church fathers. And right. so it became clearer and clearer to me that the Christian religion is really about transformation of, yeah. we'd say today, of consciousness, I guess in those days I would have said the transformation into Christ or to faith. So I started meditating. I started uh, praying a lot, and hanging out in church. No, there was no one there to teach me how to meditate. Uh, and, uh, in and the early was, 20s? Uh, I was 18, 19. Yeah, yeah. And this was in the uh, early 40s. Yeah. The fascinating thing for me is that I got thoroughly convinced that the contemplative dimension of the gospel is what Christianity is really all about. It's the heart of the gospel and right. the invitation, as I understood it from reading the early fathers of the church. Right. So when I started looking around for how I could get some help developing a contemplative life, there wasn't anybody to help. Right. Uh, priests didn't know about this. And then the general conviction of everyone was that if you wanted to pray a lot, you should go to a cloister or a monastery. Right. In other words... And leave us alone. <laughs> it was either to protect you from the world or to protect the world from you. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was the latter. But that was a distortion of the tradition, but it was firmly embedded. Yeah. So no one was trained in seminaries 
or teachers, in, at least in Catholic schools at that time, to teach prayer. Certainly the Jesuits did, did as best they could with the spiritual exercises, but even they, in the course of history, had suffered from some of its vicissitudes, and the contemplative orientation even of the spiritual exercises was truncated and cut off. And uh, at the time of the Reformation, the Jesuits weren't allowed to teach the yeah. the contemplative dimension, but had to stick with discursive meditation. Yeah. If you if you are familiar with that, I, I am. It's the it's, reflection, you know. Exactly, it's a tension that we find in in a lot of religious traditions, and there are many different words for it. But it is indeed a contemplative versus a discursive. For some, it's called esoteric versus exoteric. Or it's an inward versus an outward, and I, you know that tension is so obvious in so many of the traditions, but I'm always curious how... Well, there's a term for it. They call it cataphatic. You use the faculties and... Apophatic, if you don't. Apophatic, if you move beyond them. Exactly. But actually, it, it's, I think, a mistaken dichotomy mm-hmm. because really the two should interact. Yeah, I agree. Drawing on the tradition and the symbols of, right. of your religious culture because the, the spiritual journey involves the whole person, as you right. know. The problem is when one or the other of them gets denied, don't you think? Exactly. Yeah. And that's what happened somewhere in the Middle Ages. The whole tradition of earlier times was put on the shelf or lost, or perhaps the controversies that surrounded the Reformation fixed everybody's attention on doctrinal differences rather than on the spiritual life and union with Christ. Well, anyway, I was was sold out (laughs) earlier. Tradition, so I looked around for a contemplative view, and uh, the closest I could come was the Trappist order. Right. And another mistaken tradition that lingered in the Christian contemplative heritage was that to receive contemplation, you really had to lead a very austere life. Right. And the harder it was, the more likely you were to make headway in contemplation. Right. Right. And and, and so that's why I chose the most difficult order I could find at the time. <laughs> it seemed to make sense. <laughs> but and, and so I entered it. But in the course of about some years, I gradually changed my mind. And I think that contemplation is an inherent capacity or need in human nature. Yeah. I don't see it anymore as a reward for great virtue, yeah. but as a necessity to practice even the ordinary virtues. Not everybody will agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> but I know I couldn't practice them without this kind of relationship with the ultimate reality that the Jewish Christian heritage calls God. Right. Incidentally, God is a very difficult word today, especially in interreligious dialogue, yep. because it always has a super meaning. When you say God, you also mean at the same time, not God, yep. meaning not the God of your ideas or the God that you may have been raised in, and which you have all kinds of sometimes negative attitudes, but rather the God who is isness and vastly transcends any concept that we can have of him. Do you have any more luck with Godhead? Godhead is an important aspect of the Christian mystical tradition. It's the source of the Trinity. Yeah. And some mystics tend to identify the Godhead and the mystery of the Father. But but let me just tell you a little (laughs) story that changed my mind. After I had bought into the very rigorous life of the Trappist 
got up at two in the morning and worked hard and fasted and were completely silent except to right. speak to the superiors. Well, after about six years of this, <laughs> the monastery <laughs> burnt down. Oh, my God. And uh, I barely escaped with my life. Uh, we, we were in a fourth floor in a fire trap, so to speak. And uh, as I came down the stairs, uh, I, I could feel we were going into the flames, but I couldn't go back because some were behind me. Some brother said, bend low and come this way, and the fire hadn't spread out, but it had gone straight up. So we, we got into a side room, and then later I went down another floor and jumped out a window and landed in a snowbank. Wow. And the thought then came to me, maybe God isn't as interested in all these rules as I am. <laughs> and yet it took another 20 years, I think, for that insight to sink in. To sink and, in. And this is not to deny the value of asceticism, of but course. it's kind of a, it, it needs to be an enlightened kind of asceticism. Right. Or what the Buddhists call a skillful means. Right and not just a kind of traditional set of exercises. Right. And the idea that somehow that sort of contemplative faculty is the result of a harsh, almost self-punishing austerity is probably not the best way to look at it, huh? No, I think that naturally that turns a lot of people off. Yeah. Whereas what needs to be changed, it seems to me, is the attitude towards contemplation as something inherent to human nature. Right. All you need is to have a human soul, and most people have one. <laughs> At least, unless you're an atheist, and that's a hypothesis that has not been proved yet, as far as I can see. Uh, so, so after you escaped, you said it took 20 years for that to sink in. Did that mean that you stayed doing those practices? Well, after this, I, I start getting uh, various duties in the monastery, including abbot, which I was for 20 years, right. right during the time after the Second Vatican Council, which ended in 65, where all religious orders were asked to renew or review their rules in the light of the inspiration of the founders and the gospel. So there were an enormous number of changes there, right. and that was extremely preoccupying, and it was the first time our order got into a profound dialogue, right. which they really didn't know how to do. Was that also exciting, though, even though it was unaccustomed? Wasn't it wasn't a little bit of a yes. breath of fresh air? Yes, it was, but it also polarized many communities, because some, you know, had committed themselves lock, stock, and barrel to this difficult life, and they, yeah. they, that yeah. was who they were. That, yeah. that was their identity. Others yeah. that couldn't go ahead fast enough in trying new experiments. Yeah. So they, they, it was pretty tough. Yeah. for some of us to get through that stressful situation. In any case, after that subsided, we began uh, to get uh, acquainted with the Eastern religions and right. the uh, number of teachers, especially from the uh, Southeast tradition, came to uh, teach at uh, the Insight Meditation, which right. is only about a half hour away from Spencer, Massachusetts, where right. we were. And they used to come down and check us out. <laughs> so I got to meet a number of these teachers, and we invited them to speak to us. And so we began to to see the role of the method in these other traditions. Right. In the Christian heritage, there's a great deal of wonderful writing and literature on the beginning of the spiritual journey and the difficulties and all and the bad shape that we're in as a result of the human condition. A lot of wonderful things about the higher stages of the mystical life. 
But how you get from one to the other is not so clear. Right. And monastic life, I guess, was invented to try to fill that gap. But the problem is that a lifestyle doesn't quite translate the journey to the individual needs of someone. Right. So you need a personal, I think, contemplative practice to be able to translate the environment or the useful ascetical practice you're doing into what actually is transformation, into accessing the mystery, the mystery that turns out to be closer than we are to ourselves. Right, right. So we can sort of take stock here. The Vatican II has come out, and there's uh, both an intra-religious dialogue is starting, but also, uh, remember that Dom L. Reed Graham was writing books called Zen Catholicism. Yes, he was one of the pioneers. Sure. And from that time on, uh, more and more, it was encouraged by the Vatican. In fact, there was a dialogue instituted between monks and nuns of the West and of the, especially the Tibetan monks, but right. also of the other traditions as well. And so I got quite uh, deeply involved in that. And well, it, here's the way of putting it. It was like these great Eastern teachers were arriving in considerable numbers in America and saying to us in the West, here is our method of transformation. Where's yours? Yeah. <laughs> or what is yours? And so young people who were going to India, you know, by the thousands. Yeah in those days, looking for spirituality that they couldn't find in their own parishes or in their own Christian schools. And they expected that any teaching of contemplative prayer or transformation or or just whatever way they articulated, enlightenment, I guess would be another word, had to be, had to have a method. So that's what prompted a few of us at Spencer to think about could we put the Christian contemplative heritage into a kind of method that would be the easiest way to access it or to understand it right. for young people today or the many people who were prepared to go to India to look for spirituality? Right. Especially as, as having spent now, I guess I was about 30 years in the monastery, <laughs> 35 maybe at that point. Yeah. I knew what the treasures that were in that tradition and so it was a kind of poignant yeah. for me to see people not even thinking of looking for their tradition yeah. in their own institutions that were available to them, even yeah. in a Christian monastery. Yeah. One of my favorite books is uh, Paul Tillich's A History of Christian Thought. Tillich, of course, is a great philosopher yes, and, and really just a fountain of wonderful ideas on how to connect philosophy with spirituality and particularly within the Christian tradition. And one of the great themes that you noticed in, in, in the West is what might be called the broadly Augustinian tradition on the one hand from, from St. Augustine, which is roughly putting an emphasis on the interior in a very Neoplatonic sort of vein, and then a kind of more exterior or outward tradition most epitomized by, let's say, St. Thomas, Aquinas. I mean, both of them had both interiors and exteriors, but people often lined up behind one of these two great figures. And Tillich was clearly very fond of an Augustinian interiority and a mystical contemplative aspect. And his history of Christian thought reflected his his own ideas on that, but it's a wonderful overview of this. You go back indeed to the early church fathers that you were talking about, and it's hard to miss this extraordinary emphasis and openness to the contemplative and mystical tradition in a 
addition to having both the cataphatic, or understanding the necessity of exterior and discursive forms, there's this interior openness, or apopathic, or or I-N, or void, or Godhead, or emptiness, whatever term one wants. And you can find the contemplative tradition having these wonderful stages of transformation that we're talking about, going right on up to, of course, St. Teresa, St. John of the Cross, and so on. It's an extraordinary tradition, almost all of which, after the Reformation, got buried somehow. Yes. It's just a travesty that's hard to over-exaggerate the, the dimension of that disaster. So it must have been a kind of homecoming for you to oh, be able to go right. back and go, whoa, look at all this stuff. <laughs> yes, it was also <laughs> a bit frustrating because when you're in an institution that's fairly well established, you have to deal with uh, mindsets and preconceived ideas and fictions that are not about to drop dead upon request. Yeah. There's still a lot of resistance to it, isn't there? Well, it's beginning to be more acceptable. And, yeah. and in the past few years especially, I think the consciousness is beginning to rise that, number one, there is a Christian contemplative heritage. Right. One of the things that greatly encouraged me is how much interest there has been in Protestant circles. The Protestants, when they departed from the communion with the Roman Catholic Church, didn't take the contemplative tradition with them because it had already died out. It was yep. in one of its lowest ebbs. Yep, exactly. It's very hard to find a really well-known series of Protestant mystics. Uh, you can there were a, certainly a few of them, like Beaumet and Beaumet others. and William Blake, and, and but, but there wasn't a not a rich heritage, a, a normal thing. I don't think for the people in the pews. Yeah, and yeah. so and so a lot of Protestants both Lutherans, mainline mostly, and especially Episcopalians have shown considerable interest mm -hmm. in, in centering prayer as a way of recovering. Right. So if I, if I heard you correctly, you'd probably be in about your 50s when this started opening up. Uh, pretty much, yes. Yeah. And then, so, so you hadn't yet formally come up with, with centering prayer, although the essentials of centering prayer indeed go back millennia. Yes, yeah, the formal West. method uh, dates from 1975. Uh, tell us how that came about and exactly what, what went on. Well, it was clear to me that uh, if we're going to make it available to other people outside the monastery, the best way to present it, or the most contemporary way, was to put it into a method, because that's what especially young people were expecting. That's right. what they found in all the Eastern traditions. Right. And those methods were excellent and full of psychological wisdom, as you well know. So to put this heritage into some form <laughs> that was accessible, it, it seemed that we ought to try a method. And so we put together a very simple method based on the cloud of unknowing. Right. And Father William Menninger, uh, who was guest master, offered it, first of all, just to priests. They offered it to them for about a year. A lot of them came to the guest house for retreat. And they had so much benefit from it that then we started to enlarge it to religious and then to women. And then the Protestants started coming. And it became clear to us that the people who were most interested in it were normally laypersons. Of course, yeah. there are more of them. But it struck me there was kind of a tide coming in, you might say, of renewal or reform in which... Uh, the Spirit of God, to put it into a Christian kind of frame of reference, was pouring into the human race or family as sort of a movement of divine love to try to renew this relationship. Right. Perhaps 
because of the, the, the crisis of modern times. Right. And that that the ordinary religious uh, life that was offered in parishes, however traditional and solid, was not touching this desire for a deeper meaning or a closer walk with God or however they right. articulated it. And I think this has increased. And I've found it wherever I've traveled, different parts of the world, something more than is being offered in the usual structure of sacramental life and Sunday services. And with that, we we thought we'd try it out. So this is not a, a new religion, God forbid, nor is it an effort to proselytize. It's simply uh, our idea was to offer it to people who were interested right. and to see what would happen. Well, right. it, it spread and, you know, the response to it was, was far beyond anything we could have imagined. Yeah. And it's not because we created this desire. It was there. It was and it, it. like you say, it's a natural faculty. It was waiting. Yeah. It, waiting to be uh, addressed. And, and so it has, this has spread in different parts of the country and the world now and uh, but uh, I couldn't do much at the time because I was the abbot, and that's a pretty full-time job. Yeah. It's not two or three jobs at once. Yeah. So it's when I retired in 81 and came to St. Benedict's Monastery that I had the freedom to begin, pursue this. And, and right away, I was asked to give talks about centering prayer in the local parish. And then uh, we experimented with an extended retreat of 10 days. Mm-hmm. And there we found some people who were committed and wanted to help, and they moved up here. And we gradually started a retreat movement here and other parts of the country uh, that has just gone on growing. Which is very exciting. And I think it is addressing something that transcends the differences between the Christian denomination. Right. In other words, it's a bond of, of, of unity that, goes far beyond any kind of uh, rational agreement, which will probably never fully take place. Exactly, exactly. And uh, so we have now a great many Protestants involved in the centering prayer activities and leadership. Uh-huh. Uh, and we also have found that it's an inspiration and also a, a qualifying factor in, in engaging seriously in interreligious dialogue. Yeah. Certainly so it keeps the, moving in concentric circles to embrace more and more of reality. So I, I'd say now that it involves a relationship with the the whole planet and its concerns, social concerns, mm-hmm. and the whole universe. All of these things come together in the quiet, contemplative heart more than in the discursive head, don't they? Absolutely. Yeah. They'll never come to the discursive <laughs> head without it. But then we need both, obviously. We need that unity felt in the heart, and then we need to express it through the different discursive symbol systems and different knowledge disciplines and so on. So again, it's sort of what we were saying earlier, that cataphatic and apophatic are both needed, both uh, yeah. the, the transcendental openness or emptiness and the manifest discursiveness. Both have to go together. Yes, you need the discursive uh, element and also the symbols of, of a tradition sure. in order to express your experience exactly. to yourself and to others. Otherwise, it, uh, yeah. it can get locked up. Yeah. And it, it can't be expressed as it actually is, but you have to say something. That, <laughs> that's <laughs> Everybody's the interested. 
but you have to remember that whatever you say is not, uh, you know, is nothing like what the reality is. Right. That's, I laugh at that phrase because one of my Zen teachers and one of my very favorite people was Katagiri Roshi, and he wrote two books. And the first book was called Return to Silence, and it also meant Return to Emptiness, and was about finding the basic ground, the emptiness, uh, shunyata, and then and that's the great sand breakthrough, the great satori, finding this oneness that's simultaneously the ground of all being and is a vast emptiness because it's unqualifiable. It's a simple isness or suchness of each moment. And that's the quiet heart in that sense. But the second book was called You Have to Say Something. That was the title of the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pretty much my opinion too. I I I had a couple of workshops together with Katagiri. He is wonderful one. He was, he was yeah. really wonderful. Yeah. I'm so sorry he had, uh, they lost him there in Minnesota so soon. Uh, it, it, great it tragedy. Brilliant, yeah, it's very, Roshi. very sad. Yeah. The Roshi I knew best was the Sasaki Roshi. And he came to Spencer on his own initiative to see what trappers do because he was perplexed as to how much regulations and rules to impose on <laughs> his students. So he found out. <laughs> and we liked him so much. That we invited him to come back, and uh, and he came while I was at but there twice a year for ten years. Yeah, gave a brief session. Yeah, uh, I studied a bit with Sasaki. He was a great, great guy. He's still going. You know? Still going. Yes, he is. Strong. Indeed. Yes, he is. He's amazing. His insight into the Christian mystery, though he, he had never read anything about it. Was, yeah, was, was uh, remarkable. Well, I think that's what happens when you do intersect that the the formless, quiet, ever present heart. And to the extent that the great contemplative traditions all tap into that from their different directions and their different interpretations, when somebody does it really well in one tradition, it's always remarkable to see how sometimes easily they can inhabit the symbols of other religions and other traditions because they're coming from that same heart, in a sense, that animates them. And they show a remarkable familiarity with other traditions without necessarily have studied them that much. It's, it can be very interesting that way. Yes. Yes, the Zen tradition is, is, is marvelous. And, and, and what I found in the other great Eastern spiritual traditions is that they throw a light on things in the Christian tradition that have been in the shadows or on the shelf or yes. on the back burner. Yeah. And they bring it back into focus. I think so. I think that was what was so valuable to so many, certainly speaking for myself, and I came out of probably, I mean no offense here, but one of the thinnest or most anemic of the Christian Protestant traditions, which is Southern Baptist. Now, at least if you're a white boy, Southern Baptist is pretty pale. Uh, if, if you're African American and you're Southern Baptist, you're rocking. You've got some shamanic uh, soul going on in those revivals. <laughs> yeah, but but boy, I heard them sing. Yeah, that's right. But boy, if, if for a white boy, it's pretty thin stuff. So I was just, uh, I had had it with pretty much everything Judeo Christian until I got into studying Zen and Taoism and Vedanta and Vajrayana. And then all of a sudden, you start to see a much more profound meaning of what spirituality is and what contemplative practices and then you come back and you look at the Neoplatonic tradition and you look at St. John and St. Teresa and the Victorine mystics and you read Meister Eckhart and I mean it's just it, you know the tradition is the western tradition is full of these kinds of gems that as you say kind of got have, have, you know, have, by the way have you seen the book by Bernard McGinn on the mystical thought of Eckhart it's the best book I've seen excellent excellent on his work excellent. put out by Crossroads but 
that what what I think needs to be done is why I, I push myself to continue to be in, into religious dialogue, and that is uh, that that all of the religions I think, and here is where some of your uh, vision I find extremely helpful, need to renew their traditions or look at them again from the perspective of the essence of religion and, the, and their respective contemplative paths. Right. And the traditions, that is to say, cultural conditioning yeah. or, or baggage or barnacles even, yeah. that have gotten identified with the wisdom of the original teachers and are really uh, making it difficult to translate that wisdom into contemporary culture with right. its emphasis on science and the amazing technological right. growth right. that we're, we're going through now. Right. A lot of young people, I suppose you notice it more than I, uh, don't, uh, at least in the Christian tradition, don't really have any idea of what it is anymore. Exactly. They've lost the symbols. They don't know whether what particular doctrines they should right. accept or have to accept to be a Christian. Right. And so there's an enormous confusion in their minds. I guess it's a kind of postmodern a post postmodern mentality <laughs> where they they really want to have a a rooting right. but they don't know where to find it right. what I, it should be i think that's exactly right and it's sort of one of the things that we're certainly trying to do is to look at the great traditions and east or west but certainly i mean if you actually look at if you actually go over to japan for example where zen is most japanese teenagers know less about zen then American teenagers know about Christianity. I mean, the only reason we know about Zen is we're over here looking at the handful of Zen practitioners, and we think they're pretty amazing. Yeah. Most of the other cultures don't know about them either. So, we, you know, it's everybody's yeah. in kind of this difficult position of, of trying to look at the great traditions and do just what you're saying, shake off that excess dross, the stuff that isn't essential, and then look at what they have to offer. And the way we do that using the quadrants, for example, is the upper right quadrant is stuff like the exterior of the physical organism, and it includes a brain structure and serotonin and dopamine and neurotransmitters. There's no way that Gautama Buddha or Lao Tzu or St. John of the Cross could have known about that kind of stuff and, and no reason to know about that kind of stuff. That's a recent discovery of modern science. The same with systems theory in the lower right and in the lower left, this whole notion of cultural influence and interpretation and relativity and so on, all of which is partially true. But in the upper left quadrant, the interior of consciousness, of the phenomenology of consciousness, what the great contemplatives did is give us an exquisite phenomenology of interior consciousness that goes from the individual self right to its ground, right to its identity with the Supreme Spirit. And that contemplative phenomenology is as valid today as it was a thousand years ago. And that's where these great contemplatives, East and West, so excelled. And so we can give the other quadrants to science or postmodernism or systems theory or any of that. We're not taking away anything from that. But then they have to give us the interiors. They have to say, look, you have a methodology. 
that shows us something about consciousness that we didn't know. And that's what Centering Prayer does. That's what Sazen does. That's what Vipassana does. And that's the great and precious essence, I think, of these contemplative traditions. That's what we want to try to bring back and let, you know, not just the kids know about, but our own traditions know about. Because that's, that's the very, very important uh, treasure that we've got here. Absolutely. It it's also works the other way. <laughs> well, that is, the religions have to recognize what the, uh, at least the early fathers of the church used to say, that there are really two books of revelation for the Judeo-Christian yeah. religion. Yeah. One is the Bible and the other is nature. Yeah. So whatever truths are really verifiable in science is, is its manifestation of the ultimate reality. Yes, exactly. Just as much as religion is. Yeah. But from a limited and, and its particular perspective. Uh, the truth is one, in a sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, couldn't agree more. And, you know, any of the great contemplative pioneers, whether in the Neoplatonic tradition or Clement or Eckhart, even for that matter, Plotinus, they would agree completely with what we're saying. They knew that they, you know, that you had to leave unto the eye of flesh and the eye of mind that which could be discovered using those faculties, and then the eye of spirit or the eye of contemplation had its own truths. And none of them wanted one of the eyes to see for the others. I mean, that, that, that was never uh, meant to, to happen. So they were, in their own ways, as integral as you can get. It's just the integral vision keeps unfolding because new truths are discovered in, in nature and in the manifest world. Right. So, I, so in terms of the integral approach, though, the thing that was so missing in the traditions wasn't it's their acknowledgement of science, because most priests acknowledge the existence of science, and they go to medical doctors when they're sick. What was missing was the contemplative tradition of all things. Yeah. And so that's why Centering Prayer, I think, is not only caught on so rapidly and had such a profound impact, but I really think it's probably one of the single most important things that's happened in the Judeo-Christian movement in, in the West in, in, in the last 30 or 40 years. And, and yes. it has to. Don't, I mean, well, I know you're much too, in the best sense, humble to, you know. <laughs> the next question you know, is, come on. How, how do you get people to do it? Because <laughs> uh, we're not, uh, you know, there's no sanction. It's simply an invitation. Right. And uh, right. Uh, that's if, if how people can get the motivation to do this in this uh, increasingly noisy and fast-paced world a world of confusion and the multiplication yeah. of ideas. This is really the uh, the great issue in my mind is, is, is to how to reach people in such a way that they can see the value of this in yeah. the midst of the uh, enormous pressure of other events, and, and, yeah. and some of which are are world-shattering right now. Yeah, yeah. The, with the information explosion, you every tragedy in the world is instantly available. So right. there's an overload of nervous, emotional exhaustion, I think, going on in a lot of people. All the more reason they need a period of silence. Uh, absolutely. Without that still point at the uh, eye of the cyclone, the center of the cyclone, the cyclone will drive you nuts. So that that's exactly what... Uh, but maybe you have, maybe you found some ideas of how to persuade or interest people who actually want a deeper meaning in life or want to access this dimension of their of the of the human potential and don't really know how to go about it they, they yeah. really need a method of some kind yeah. it doesn't have to be just one 
that it's, con it's, it's con well, what, the, what, what we're finding in the modern and postmodern world is that it needs contemplative wine, but in different wine skins. It needs a different packaging. So we want to work with David Frenet and others to situate your work and centering prayer and all of that in, in an integral context. Yes, yes. Well, we'd like to have part in it. I think that that formula you put together is, is the best one there is for approaching reality. <laughs> As in, from a intelligible stance, so I do what I can to encourage people to see. Look at those four quadrants and right. the stages of consciousness. I was very pleased that you're continuing to write so much and to try to make it a little more accessible to people like myself <laughs> who can't, haven't got a lot of time to read, but who are very interested in the subject. So, but you, I mean, given that there's a, 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 some of the difficulties you've talked about, nonetheless, um, the, the centering prayer has really caught on, as you say. Do you know, actually happen to know how many different groups or centers or that there are different groups that are doing this around, in this, in this country and around the world? It's quite a large number, you know. Well, it, it's hard to, to know because there may be a, an enormous number of people we don't even know about. I know that when I give lectures here and there, people we didn't know about at all say we have a group or they read the book and just started it on their own. Right. They can do that. We prefer to teach it in a way that has been well thought out based on experience. But if they pick it up, that's fine. Yeah. It's out of our control at this point because it's gotten well-known, and people uh, might attend a workshop and just do it. Many of them have never even heard of contemplative <laughs> which offers resources and retreats to, to support them in the journey, which I think right. would be a great help if they knew about it. Our yeah, mailing list is, is somewhere around 55,000, right. but uh, I, know, I know there's a lot more people actually doing it. Right. We want to get the word out because that's, that's what's so important. Yes. Um, you know, how does it, you know, 80 years old? What uh, You get very, very contemplative just with age, too, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, nothing is certain in this world, as far as I can see, but it is a, you, you do, uh, if you start young, I think you'll, uh, you'll improve with age. Uh, but uh, that also, if you start old, uh, at least the God that we understand, is not uh, concerned about time, and he, he can give you in a short time, uh, in response to one's goodwill, uh, you know, all the things you might have done in a, over a long time. Right. Purity of intent can collapse time, can't it? Yes. Yeah. Or, or the intensity of love, I guess, is yeah. another way of saying that. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, Good. Yeah. Well, this is terrific, and we want to just do what we, you know, what we can do to uh, get the word out even more, and particularly to the to the younger crowd because well, they're you. very very hungry for this. Different groups or centers, or that there are different groups that are doing this around in this in this country and around the world. It's quite a large number, you know. Well, it, it's hard to to know because there may be a, an enormous number of people we don't even know about. I know that when I give lectures here and there, people we didn't know about at all say we have a group or they read the book and just started it on their own. Right. They can do that. We prefer to teach it in a way that has been well thought out based on experience. But if they pick it up, that's fine. Yeah. It's out of our control at this point because it's gotten well-known, and people uh, might attend a workshop and just do it. 
Many of them have never even heard of contemplative outreach, <laughs> which offers resources and retreats to, to support them in the journey, which I think right. would be a great help if they knew about it. Our yeah, getting... mailing list is, is somewhere around 55,000. Right. But uh, I, know, I know there's a lot more people actually doing it. Right. We want to get the word out because that's, that's what's so important. Yes. Um, you know, how does it, you know, 80 years old? What, uh, you get very, very contemplative just with age, too, don't you? <laughs> well, I, I, nothing is certain in this world, as far as I can see, but it is a, you, you do, uh, if you start young, I think you'll, uh, you'll improve with age. Uh, but uh, that also, if you start old, uh, at least the God that we understand, is not uh, concerned about time, and he, he can give you in a short time, uh, in response to one's goodwill, uh, you know, all the things you might have done uh, over a long time. Right. Purity of intent can collapse time, can't it? Yes. Yeah. Or or the intensity of love, I guess, is yeah. another way of saying that. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, Good. Yeah. Well, this is terrific, and we want to just do what we, you know, what we can do to uh, get the word out even more, and particularly to the to the younger crowd because well, they're very, very hungry for this. 